0: Would you please take your Bibles now and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Here in chapter 5 we have the beginning of Paul's very practical portion of his of his epistle and he's speaking here of the relative duties of the various relationships we have. Uh, he begins uh, in, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 20 through, 22 and following, but there he, he begins in the home with the relationship and responsibilities of husbands and wives. Uh, and he begins here um, with the wives in, in verse 22, but we're going to be looking primarily at verses 25. Through 27, uh, I'd like to read those verses for you. Husbands, he says, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And let's just read uh, a couple more of the verses. It brings it all into the context. And so he concludes by saying, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Now, we didn't read the verses, but in, in chapter uh, 5, verse 22, he actually begins with the wives. And if we read what he exhorts them to do, we can see that it can be uh, sometimes a very hard pill to swallow. He says, wives, submit, your, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And I, as I said, that's a that's a pretty hard pill to swallow. You might not think so, men, but uh, how would you like to have to submit to somebody like you all the time? <laughs> that's not an easy thing. Uh, whenever I go through premarital counseling or sometimes in marriage counseling, I, I acknowledge the difficulty of this for women. Uh it can be hard for them to embrace this command. And I might say something like this, I, I know that you think that this is a difficult command to follow, but I want to assure you that when you get to the duties and responsibilities of the husband, it gets much harder. For he tells them to love their own wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave him himself up for her. Someone said, taken seriously... The naked form of these words, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, is staggering. And and honestly received, the punch it delivers flattens many Christian men because they fall so short. And sometimes men will complain their wives aren't submitting. Or when they are even at home and they're seeing they're not submitting like they ought, they might become incensed. But then they have to look at the command given to them and realize they don't measure up all the way either. Uh, but it's a difficult thing. But here Paul lifts up Christ and his love for the church as the supreme example for husbands to follow. Now, it is a, an example for husbands to follow, but if you look up in chapter 5, verse 2, he tells us all, husbands, wives, children, all of us, to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So we're all to exhibit this kind of sacrificial love. But I want us to consider this example of Christ's love to the church as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper tonight. And I want to begin by looking at how he loved the church. And we need to ask the question, well, who is it, he says, who loved the church? Well, you know he's speaking of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no love to be compared with his love when we consider the source of his love. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus asked his disciples this question, who do men say that I am? And then he asked them, of course, who do you say that I am? And they said, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Well, that probing question of the Lord is as important today as it was when it was asked 2,000 years ago. And John in his gospel makes it abundantly clear from beginning to end that this Jesus is none other than the Son of God himself. Very God of very God. He begins his book, uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You consider who Christ was. He wasn't just a man. He was the God-man. Being God, He is supreme over all. Isaiah 40 says, Behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket and are counted as small dust on the scales. You think of the greatness and glory of God and it says that He loved the church. We look at us and we're part of that church, that universal church. We're part of the church of Jesus Christ. You look around and say the God of heaven who created the heavens and the earth loves us. What a magnificent thing that is. In Psalm 8, the psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and stars which you have ordained, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? And yet here it says he loved the church. He loves the church. He's not ashamed, the writer to Hebrews says, to call us brethren. This motley crew, we might say, look at us. And yet he loves us. He is the one whom Hebrews says is the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. That is the Godhood. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. And when He had Himself had purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Now, we have a difficult time conceiving of this, that the God of heaven loves us. But can you think ahead to that day of the Lord when Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven in all of his glory with the holy angels. And he's coming back for his church. He's coming back for us because he loves the church. Paul said to the Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is the One who loved us. He loved us. In Him, He says to the Colossians in 2, verse 9, in Him dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What a great God this is! And yet, He loved us. Isaiah 57, 15, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. And yet he is the one who loves us. He is the eternal son of the living God. Very God of very God. And it says he loved us. But then we also can consider when did he love us? Well, the Bible teaches that he loved us from all eternity. All eternity. Jesus Himself alludes to this covenant of redemption, as the theologians put it. The covenant of redemption took place in eternity between the members of the Godhead. Remember in John 17, when Jesus was praying to the Father and He spoke to Him about the work that God had given Him to do and that He had accomplished it all. He is the one in eternity who loved us. There was a pact or a covenant between the members of the Godhead. They entered into the sacred covenant, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternal covenant with the Father for the salvation of His people, the church. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, He, Christ, being in the form of God, did not consider Robbery! It's robbery to be equal with God. And He made Himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of man. This is the One who loved us. Not only He loved us in eternity, but in time He came to this earth. He was born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those who were in bondage all of their lives. It was during this time that He came and He lived this perfect life and He loved us. And when He was with His disciples on that last day before His crucifixion, John tells us in chapter 13, verse 1, having loved His own, He loved them to the end. So He loved us from eternity through eternity. He'll always love us. Now, we need to think also not only who it was who loved, but... Whom did he love? Whom did he love? Well, Paul says that he loved the church. He loved the church. Not an institution, but a people. The people of his own possession. The whole body of the redeemed from all ages. The whole number of the elect. Paul goes on to speak of the church here in this passage as this beautiful bride of Christ in all of her glory and perfection. We see a a glimpse of that at the end of the book of Revelation when John sees the bride coming down from heaven, the church coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And here he speaks of the the church in all of her glory uh, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now that's the ultimate goal and the end of his church. That's the church Triumphant, we call it. The church triumphant in all of her glory. But Christ came and sought us and bought us when we were anything but perfect. If you turn back to chapter 2, we see what we were before we came to Christ. He says we were dead. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We who were dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Uh, Rebellious children. Wayward children. And it says He loved us. He loved us then. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. He loved the church, not in her beauty, but in all of her ugliness. Not because of her ugliness. He didn't love that. He didn't love her sin. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says. God doesn't love everyone the same, you know. He loves his children in a better way, a a, a more glorious way. I once heard a a very famous preacher being interviewed on one of the uh, CNN shows. This was many years ago, but he was being interviewed together with a a well-known reprobate, a man who had nothing good to say about God or Christians, uh, a, a true reprobate. And the preacher turned to the reprobate, Well-meaning, I'm sure, but way off in his theology. And he said, God loves you as much as He loves me or anyone else. Was that true? No, not at all. Now, does God love the whole world? Yes, there's a way in which God does love the whole world. But He has a special love for His own. It's been stated in this way that He has done some things for all men and all things for some. Well, He's done all things for His elect. His people. He loved them with an everlasting love. And we say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would He love us more than others when we all come from the same lump of clay? When we all come from the same place, dead in sins, walking according to the course of this world? Well, it has nothing to do with our worthiness. It has nothing to do with our goodness. All of His people elect without exception, are unworthy of His love. They were all chosen out of the same fallen lump of clay. They were all by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, Paul says. That is, they all deserved His condemnation. All deserved it. But God, again, who is rich in mercy, by which His great love with which He loved us, even when we were in that condition, He made us alive together with Christ. You see, this is the point here, is that God doesn't find the beautiful, the valuable, worthy recipients of His love. He comes to the unlovely, the unworthy, the undesirable. John Owen said that sin, which we're all sinners, and our sin holds out all the unloveliness and undesirableness that can be in a creature. Sin is not a beautiful thing, as enticing as it is to sinners to do it. It's very ugly. And it's especially ugly in the light of God's holiness. In the light of God's purity, our sin is foul. Our sin is filthy. And yet, He loves us. In Titus chapter 3, Paul there... in, a, in a, in much the same way as He does in Ephesians 2, He speaks of our past and and how we were before He saved us from our sins. He says we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's how ugly we were. And yet, he goes on to say, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, He saved us. Not by our own goodness, our own works of righteousness, but according to His mercy. He saved us. You see, this is God's love and Christ's love for His church. Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because of any goodness in us, and it wasn't because of our love to Him, which the Bible also makes very clear. He didn't love us because we loved Him. We heard a wonderful message in Sunday school from, uh how do you say that man's name again? We, yeah, the, the huh? yeah, how, the man we watched on Sunday school. Pettit. Pet Yes, Mr. Pettit, I'm sorry. Mr. Pettit, he spoke of this. He said, we didn't choose Him. We never would have chosen Him. He chose us. He didn't choose us because we chose Him. We wanted nothing to do with Him. We wanted to go our own way, do our own thing. He saved every one of us in that condition. Not because we loved Him, but because He loved us. Here in His love, John says in 1 John 4.10, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you say, well, that's the Father's love. This is the Son's love. They're one in their love to us. The Father loves, and the Son loves, and the Spirit loves. The entire Trinity loves His people. Deuteronomy seven seven. Here we can liken it to God's love for Israel of old. The Lord, He said, did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more uh, more in the Lord. No, He loved you regardless of all of that. You look at His own disciples that He chose. And that small band of fishermen. They were uneducated and fickle, sometimes unreliable. And yet He loved them. They couldn't be counted on, even in His hour of need in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Couldn't you wait with me just an hour? And they could not. You ever feel unworthy to be called His own? That's not a bad thing, you know, to feel unworthy. Robert Schuller, and many of you don't know who that was, but he was a, a famous preacher and author. Not a good preacher or author. He preached a lot of heresy but he was very, very popular. And he wrote a book, uh, and he said in this book that the worst sin that we can commit is to say, I am unworthy of God's love. Oh, we're all unworthy of God's love. Every one of us. We should be more like the prodigal. You remember the prodigal when he went off and he took his father's fortune and he wasted it away. And yet he... He was granted repentance by the Lord. And when he found himself desiring even to eat what the hogs were eating, he remembered his father's house. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough to eat? I'm not a servant. I'm a son. I don't deserve this. No, he didn't say anything like that. He says, I'll go back to my father. and said, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that was a wonderful statement to make to his father i'm no longer worthy god desires that we would be humble and feel this unworthiness you remember the church in corinth i mentioned them this morning in this morning's message it was a church full of pride and boasting god had unusually blessed the church but instead of humbling them it lifted them up with pride And so Paul reminds them in these very humbling words, he says, consider, my brethren, your calling. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. He humbled them. He saw me ruined in the fall, and yet He loved me notwithstanding all. It was Christ Very God of very God who loved the church, not in her glory, but in her sin. What did He do? It says He not only loved the church, but He gave Himself up for her. He gave. This is grace. Not giving us what we deserve, but the very opposite. We deserved His wrath, but He demonstrated His love to us. He gave Himself. See, true love gives. And it's in relation to husbands and wives. If you're to love your wife, you're to be giving. You're to be sacrificial to her. Because Christ, look how He gave. He gave and He gave and He gave. We didn't merit His love. We did nothing at all to merit it. We deserved His wrath, but He gave. What did He give? Paul says that He gave Himself. He didn't give all the riches and gold and wealth of heaven, but he gave us something far, far greater. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds his readers and reminds us that we're to remember knowing that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without Blemish and without spot. This was his love he gave himself. Greater love, Jesus says, has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. In Romans chapter eight, I quoted this, but he said he he, no, I didn't quote this one. He said he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. This again is the love of the Father. But the two are one in this in their love toward the church. He did not spare His Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? His love was sacrificial. He gave Himself. There is a green hill far away without a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. We know not. We cannot tell what pains He had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. He gave the ultimate price for us. There wasn't a higher price that He could give. So He so loved, He gave. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Well, how did He give? Well, as I've said, it was a sacrificial love. It was for her. Back to chapter 5. He says, The Lord loved the church and gave Himself for her. It was on her behalf He died. He wasn't dying just because of the taunts and malice of His enemies. He did it for the church. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. And with His own blood He bought her. And for her He died. It was a sacrificial love. But it was also what we would call a sanctifying love. He goes on to say, He gave Himself for her that He might sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of water by the Word. See, this is His point in salvation. As we've seen when we've looked at some of the the birth narratives, He came to save us from our sins. That's what He came to do, to make us Holy. He died to make us holy. He died that we might be forgiven, yes. But He died, the hymn writer said, to make us good. Did you know that? Salvation is to make you good. Yes, you're a sinner. You're not good. There's none good. No, not one. But that was the purpose of His coming and sacrificing Himself to make us good that we might go at last to heaven saved by His precious blood. His death on the cross justified us. He took our sins upon Himself. He paid the full price, the penalty for our sins. So He justifies us. He declares us righteous in the sight of God. He takes our sin and He imputes to us His own righteousness. We are justified. But salvation is more than justification. That's a precious part of it. And in that, we can boast. In that, we have a firm foundation. But He also came to sanctify us. That is, to make us holy. The Roman Catholic Church confuses justification and sanctification. It speaks of justification as somehow making us holy. No, we're not made holy. We're declared holy. And there's a difference. He declares sinners righteous. And He does this because of the death of Christ. His sacrifice, His atoning blood. But He also makes us righteous through sanctification. And that's a process. There's no instant sanctification here on earth. It's a progressive work of God working in us what is well-pleasing in His sight. It's a process. It takes time. In fact, it takes your whole life. And even at the end, you're still not fully sanctified. But He's doing this. He's working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight. That He is working all things together for your good. The trials He brings. The testings and those things. The blessings. He's using all of these things to mold us and to shape us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus gave Himself that He might do this. Sanctify us. But then sanctification, there's a future and perfect sanctification. And that's what we call glorification. It's when He conforms us completely and perfectly into the image of Christ. John says, It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, that is, in His second coming, when He appears, we will be like Him. For we will see Him as He is. There's this future and perfect sanctification. That's what He came to do. He gave Himself for the church. He died for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word. Then He says He might present her, that is the church, to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is an amazing love of Christ to the church and this is what he holds up for husbands to do and act towards their wives. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. He went to the farthest extent in sacrificing for her. He died for her. He rose again on her behalf, and he works in her continually the process of sanctification. Are you any way like that to your wives? You have to hang your head to say no. But that's the goal. That's what Christ is even working in you to be. Sanctified to that extent that you will have the same kind of love for her that He has for the church. We love Him because He first loved us. Here's the love of God and the love of Christ. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us. J.C. Ryle also noted here about how He continues to love us, even after saving us, after bringing us out of sin and darkness and the world, translating us into His kingdom, we still in this life have so much infirmity. J.C. Ryle said that He should bear with all of our countless infirmities from grace to glory. That's from saving us to taking us to heaven. That He should never be tired of their endless inconsistencies and petty provocations. That He should go on forgiving and forgiving incessantly. Never be provoked to cast them off and give them up. All this is marvelous indeed. And that's how husbands are to be towards their wives. Oh, is your wife perfect? No, but neither are you. Christ was perfect and we're not. But we even have more grounds to be more patient with them. We should go on as he does, forgiving and forgetting incessantly. Husbands, love your wives, and not only to our wives but to one another. Never to be provoked to cast them off or to give them up. All this he says is marvelous indeed, and yet that's the example he holds before us as husbands, but also as Christians towards one another. J. C. or John Flavel, a Puritan, said we pour out so much cold water of unkindness and provocation provocation, as is enough to cool and quench any love in the world except His. Doesn't change His love toward us. What a merciful God. What a merciful Savior He is. And so we are to be imitators of God as dear children, He says in verse 1. We're to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given Himself up for us. Romans fifteen seven, he says, Receive one another just as Christ also received you to the glory of God. Colossians three, verse twelve. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. That's who you are, you know. You're an elect of God. You've been chosen, holy and beloved of God. What are you to do? He says, put on tender mercies. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Just as He's done for you, you're to do to one another. That's the admonition here. We have set before us the most glorious example of love. True love. Not just some flimsy, sentimental love that can't hold water, but we have true, solid love. He said we are to love in that way towards those in your home, to those in the church, even to those in the world. We're to show this kind of love, the same love that He has shown to us. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded how far He took this. He gave Himself. This, He said, is My body, which is what? broken for you. This is My blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here He says, remember Me. But it's not something just to remember and and mull over in your mind, oh, isn't it wonderful? It makes me feel so good. It ought to be a great comfort to you, but it's an impetus for you to love one another. For you to love your wives' husbands, or your wives to love your husbands, or your children, or your friends, your neighbors, your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to love one another, Jesus said, even as I have loved you. May God help us as we come to the table tonight to, to remember what He's done. But to see what implications it has for us. We ought to love one another.